Pastor Eugene Peterson, in his book, Answering God, wrote about how the Psalms can help us express our emotions with God. Here's what he writes. He says, It's easy to be honest before God with our hallelujahs. It's somewhat more difficult to be honest in our hearts. It's nearly impossible to be honest before God in the dark emotions of our hate. So we commonly suppress our negative emotions, unless neurotically we advertise them. Or when we do express them, we do it far from the presence or what we think is the presence of God, ashamed or embarrassed to be seen in these curse-stained bib overalls. But when we pray the Psalms, these classic prayers of God's people, we find that will not do. We must pray who we actually are, not who we think we should be. Today we're starting this brand new sermon series that's going to take us through a summer in the Psalms. For 12 of the next 13 weeks, we will be focusing on a different psalm each week. We're going to look at some of the more well-known passages and probably some that may not be as well-known. But I believe it's important for us to take a look at the psalms because they can help us in talking with God over a range of emotions, in approaching him, as Peterson said, as who we actually are, not who we think we should be. The book of Psalms has 150 prayers, hymns, laments, and songs that cover the range of human experience. Oftentimes, they're used in worship in the Old Testament as well as in prayers. For example, in our last series, when we looked at Jonah, when he's in the belly of the great fish, Jonah prayed of, of parts of a few different psalms. They ranged from lament, where he felt as if there was no hope, he was sinking into the depths, to praise as he knew that God still heard him and would hear him and, and rescue him. These prayers, praises, laments, songs that we find in the book of Psalms, they just aren't also like off-the-cuff, spontaneous things, prayers, like we see in narrative parts of the scriptures, but they are Hebrew poetry and written in what one of my Bible dictionaries calls a tightly woven poetic composition. There's a pattern to a lot of the psalms as well as they have liturgical illusions, which is like a formula that would be used in public worship. One of the neat things about the psalms, though, is that um, we're reading the same thing, the same prayers, the same psalms that Jesus read. We, we pray these same psalms. How can that be? Diedrich, Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote, a theologian in, in the 40s, he wrote in his book on the Psalms, he says, how is it possible for a man and Jesus Christ to pray the Psalter together? It is the incarnate Son of God who has borne every human weakness in his own flesh and who here pours out the heart of all humanity before God and who stands in our place and prays for us. He has known torment and pain, guilt and death more deeply than we. Therefore, it is the prayer of our human nature assumed by him, which comes bef here before God. It's really our prayer, but since he knows us better than we know ourselves, and since he himself was true man for our sakes, it's also really his prayer. And it can become our prayer only because it was his prayer. I think it's amazing that Jesus read and, and prayed the same psalms that we look at, the same prayers that we can pray. And as Bonhoeffer writes, they become our prayers because they were his. So as we go through this summer, I encourage you to take some time to read through some of the psalms. 
course, today we're going to be starting this series, and I always like to start at the beginning of things because that seems like a good place to start usually. And so we're going to start with Psalm 1. Psalm 1 presents us with two divergent paths that we can take. Now, this isn't the Robert Frost poem of taking the road less traveled. Although maybe it kind of is, I don't know. But this psalm, which introduces the reader to the entire collection, gives us two paths. There's the way of the wicked, and then there's the way which is the pathway to true happiness. So I want to read the entire psalm for you. I'm just going to, if you have your Bibles, you want to open them to Psalm chapter, just Psalm 1. It's not a chapter, it's a psalm. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. We tend to live in a pursuit of happiness. I mean, it's in the Declaration of Independence, right? You know, it's one of those unalienable rights along with life and liberty. But I'm not sure happiness in 1776 is the same as what we find in the Bible, and it's definitely not the same as what we would define it today. Today, most people will probably define their happiness as a seeking of pleasure or satisfaction and some materialism kind of things. Pastor John Ortberg has a book called Dangerous Toils and Snares, and he talks about taking his kids to McDonald's to get what you would get to find happiness at McDonald's, right? A happy meal for kids. Here's what he says. He says, you're not just buying fries and McNuggets and a dinosaur stamp. You're buying happiness. McDonald's advertisements have convinced my children that they, are, they have a little McDonald's-shaped vacuum in their souls. The problem with the Happy Meal, though, is that happy wears off and they need a new fix. No child discovers lasting happiness in just one. You know, remember the Happy Meal. What great joy I found there. Happy Meals bring happiness only to McDonald's. I loved Happy Meals when I was a kid. Um, you know, they started off in 79, I think I saw this week when I was researching it. So I would have been like, you know, I, I, was, I was alive, but barely. Um, but it, it's still early days for the Happy Meals and stuff. And I loved going to the Happy Meals, but it, it's totally true, though. Like, you have that initial excitement for a Happy Meal toy, that, but that excitement wears off by the time you get in the car to go home, I think, a lot of times, because mainly because the toy would probably break by the time you got in the car. It might provide a temporary fix, but you're going to get tired of it. And you're going to look for something new. And that's, that's the way happiness, when we are searching for happiness in this world today, you know, that's what happens, right? It might give us a temporary fix, but eventually it's going to crumble. And, and it's not, you're, you're going to grow tired of it. What Psalm 1 gives us is the true pathway to happiness, or what true happiness is. It's a happiness that is found only in God, not in man-made things. And so verse 1 begins with this phrase. It says, blessed is 
the one. Now, this word blessed or blessed, it, it's also able to be translated as happy, like how happy is the one. In Greek, this is the same word that Jesus uses uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, where he goes through the, the, all of the uh, things that are blessed there. Blessed are the poor, blessed are, are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers. And the meaning is similar. It's, it's favored, fortunate, happy, privileged. So that's what we're looking at in this passage. Blessed is the one. But instead of going positive with it at the start, the psalmist goes negative. He says, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. So what the, the writer here is doing is he's showing us three aspects, three degrees of departure away from God. These three degrees of departure, they're shown as ways that one can conform to the world's ways, those who don't follow God. First, there's the one who is blessed, but doesn't, he doesn't walk in step, or another way to put it, in the counsel of the wicked. Psalm 10 has a pretty good description of the wicked man. And so I'm going to read Psalm 10, verses 2 through 11, where it says, In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. He boasts about the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there's no room for God. His ways are always prosperous. Your laws are rejected by him. He sneers at all his enemies. He says to himself, nothing will ever shake me. He swears no one will ever do harm. His mouth is full of lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. He lies in wait near the villages from ambush. He murders the innocent. His eyes watch in secret for his victims. Like a lion in cover, he lies in wait. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. He says to himself, God will never notice. He covers his face and never sees. That's the picture of the wicked. Now, if that's who you're taking counsel from, if that's who you're taking advice from, that is not going to go well for you. The Apostle Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, he uses a Greek poet to make a point about this kind of thing. 1 Corinthians 15.33, he says, Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. When we start to take that kind of counsel from the wicked, we can move to that second part of Psalm 1.1 as we stand in the way that sinners take. So we've moved from just talking about it to engaging in sin. And a lot of times, that's going to come with a lie, right? It's going to be a lie from the first part where we're getting counsel from somebody who doesn't follow God. And they'll say things like, well, it doesn't really hurt anybody, so it should be fine, right? But that's a lie. Anything they say that leads you away from God is going to be a lie. And that's what the father of lies, Satan, wants us to hear. That's probably the biggest play in his playbook. I mean, it's how he tempted Adam and Eve. He said, did God really say that you shouldn't eat from this? Like Adam and Eve were drawn in with the counsel of the wicked, and then we stand in the way that the, winner, the, 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 way the sinners take. It can be so easy to fall into temptation. If we don't have the proper view of God, then we're just going to stay there. And that's another one of his lies. Oh, you know, you're, you're just a sinner. God can't love you. Well, no. 
if you're dealing with that lie, that it is a lie. You know, yeah, you're a sinner, so am I, but that doesn't affect how much God loves you. And he does, so very much. Now, there's a third degree of departure, and it's probably the worst. It's sitting in the company of mockers. This is adopting the attitude of those who are separated from God by their sin and openly mock him. One commentary talks about this verse this way, using scornful people as another way of translating mockers. It says that scornful people are those who hold nothing sacred, scoffing at God and all that is associated with him. To sit with such people takes us a step further than walking and standing. It suggests remaining or abiding with them and enjoying their company. In the early 2000s, there was a group of uh, people who were atheists, and they had a different approach to arguing against religion than what had been previously done. Uh, This group, they were termed in 2006 the New Atheists. Four of the most prominent members of this group were uh, guys named Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, and Daniel Dennett. At one point in a debate, one time, Dawkins, who wrote a book called The God Delusion, he said that atheists should mock Christians, ridicule them in public with contempt. Now, a lot of people since then, including atheists, have pushed back on that. But as time continues to go on, I think you can see where some do still continue to heed that advice. This is what the first verse of Psalm 1 is warning us about. As Warren Wearsby writes, he says, If Christians start listening to the counsel or the advice, the plans of the ungodly, They will soon be standing in their way of life, and finally will sit right down and agree with them. Those are things that we need to watch. Those are the, that's the negative side of it. That's what we're not supposed to do, right? But what is the one who is blessed to do? Well, let me read again Psalm 1, verse 1, where it says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step of the wicked, stand in the way that sinners take, sit in the company of mockers. And then verse 2, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and meditates on his law day and night. The negative gives way to the positive. The blessed, the one who has happiness, is not the one who looks like this. You know, it's not the one who is, is walking in step with the sinners and all of those things. But he's the one who does this, the two things that the psalmist talks about. First, blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. So instead of living in the counsel of the wicked, we live in the counsel of God and in his law. When he writes of the law, he is speaking of scriptures and God's word. Other psalms speak about it like this as well. Psalm 19, verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. Psalm 19, 119, which is basically a love letter to God's word, And we're going to be looking at that psalm later in the summer. But for now, let me just read to you what verse 1 and verse 16 say. Verse 1 says, Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. And verse 16 says, I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Here's how one commentary describes this delight. It says, what does it mean to delight in the word of God? Well, Think about it like this. Here's a man who is in love with a woman. He delights in her. He yearns to spend time with her. And when he is with her, he drinks in every word he speak, or she speaks. He's intoxicated with her beauty. 
so it is with the godly person in the Word of God. That's what it should be like. This, this is God's Word, written and, and passed down through generations, trustworthy and true, showing us who God is, who we are. And even though it was completed 2,000 years ago, it is, of course, still relevant to us today. But just having delight in God's Word isn't enough. You really need to go a step further than that and meditate on His law day and night. That's the second thing. But because of your delight, that drives you to saturate yourself in God's Word. Applying God's Word to your life, it's most important. And you cannot apply what you don't know. As the Israelites were preparing to enter into the promised land following the death of Moses, the Lord said to Joshua, who was promoted to lead the nation, in Joshua 1.8, he says, Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Warren Wiersbe, again, writes that meditation is to the soul what digestion is to the body. It means understanding the word, chewing on it, and then applying it to our lives, making it part of the inner person. We saturate ourselves in the word. It feeds us. And that leads me to the illustration that is given to us in verse 3. It says that person, the person who is delighting in the word, the person who is meditating on it day and night, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. So we got a picture. Yeah, picture that. Picture a tree that's planted in the ground near a stream of water. A stream could be a river, a creek, um, could be a canal that was made for irrigation. As That's probably what they were talking about here. But you've got this tree, and it's firmly rooted in the ground. And it's constantly being watered by the stream. Now, the heat... That's not going to be a problem for it. The heat of the, the Mideast, not going to be a problem because it is firmly rooted and fed. Its leaves are going to stay green, not throughout the whole year. Like it'll still go through the natural uh, changes and seasons and everything. But the point is that the leaves are going to be healthy. The tree is going to be healthy. So they stay green. They don't wither. The tree will yield fruit each season. Now, a tree that's not watered still can bear fruit, but it's not going to bear good fruit. That's the picture of the one who finds delight in and meditates on God's word. It's firmly rooted and fed by God's word. And we're going to bear fruit. We're going to bear the fruit of the Spirit, as Paul writes in Galatians 5, and 23. says, but the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, forbearance, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things, there's no law. This tree, as this tree is fed from the stream, it is protected from seasons of drought. Prophet Jeremiah also uses this uh, analogy in Jeremiah 17, 8, where he says, they will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. Doesn't fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. See, when we are firmly rooted and fed, we don't have to fear those times where it seems like God is far away or silent or when our faith is struggling, when temptations hit hardest. We are able to weather those storms because we know that we have built our lives on the firm foundation 
of God's word. Something solid. Jesus said, as he closed out the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 24, he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Psalm 1 says that the benefit for the blessed person when they delight in the word is that whatever they do will prosper. Another way to translate that is whatever they do will come to maturity. So it's not necessarily about prospering like with your with money or with your health or anything like that. But it's speaking about bringing it to perfection, which, as I think about it, it's really what sanctification is, right? It's that bringing to perfection of the follower of Jesus. It's God working in the believer in, in their life to form and to shape them closer and closer to Christ. And so that fruit of the Spirit is going to be more evident, more apparent. The outward life changes all because God is working in you through his word, through his spirit, as you delight in and meditate on it. That is the person who is deeply rooted and fed by the stream. But there's another image that is used by the author to describe somebody who's not. And that's in verses 4 and 5 where it says, Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in, in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. The tree is rooted. It's fed by the waters. It's going to be able to withstand the elements against it, the wind, the heat, etc. But the wicked, they're like chaff. Chaff is described as like the husks of winnowed grain or dried grasses. One commentator writes that chaff is, in such a setting, the ultimate of what is rootless, weightless, and useless. From what I understand, what would happen is that the threshed grain would be tossed up so that the weightless, the rootless chaff would blow away, and the grain, which is heavier, would fall, and that's what you would be left with. I'll tell you, that's, that's not a good thing for the wicked. As we see, they're not going to be able to stand at the judgment, nor will, be they, nor will they be in the assembly of the righteous, they won't be counted among the believers who inherit life eternal with the Father. John the Baptist talked about this in Matthew's gospel. He said in Matthew 3.12, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with an unquenchable fire. These people, they don't have their lives rooted in the word of God. It's not what they use to order their lives, to be the lens through which they look through everything when they're looking at the world. Ultimately, it's going to be to their destruction because they reject the Lord and his salvation. They've not built their lives on the rock, but something far less stable. We saw Jesus talk about the wise man built his house on the rock, but... He also talks about a foulish man who doesn't. Matthew seven twenty six. Everyone who hears these words of mine does not put them into practice. It's like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. 
Last verse in Psalm 1 says, For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. There's two pathways here. Those are your options. There's only two. It's not a third. One leads to a pathway of destruction. The other is a pathway that leads to true happiness. And I would say the first, the one that leads to destruction, that's probably the more appealing-looking path, quite honestly. Maybe even it's the easier path. But it's not going to fulfill you. It's not going to fill that that God-shaped void in your heart. That's the second path. That's truly the way. And we know the way down that path because Jesus, the Son of God, said in John 14, 6, when he asked, how do, we, how do we know the way to God? He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As we delight in God's word, as we meditate on it, that's what we see. That Jesus is the way. He died on the cross to provide that way for us to be reconciled to the Father. So we take the way of Jesus. You know, we read Scripture devotedly. We apply it to our lives. And from there, we start to show the fruit of the Spirit as, as the Lord and His Spirit work in us. So in light of that, we surrender to God. We give Him everything that we are. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 say, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and prove what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I would say, take that path that leads to life. Take the way of Jesus. If you haven't yet, I want you to know he's inviting you to do that today. And we talked about those new atheists. There were four of them. One of them already knows the answer because he he passed away a few years ago. But he knows now, unfortunately. We don't need to wait to make that response to the Lord's call. His call is the same. It's follow me. Take that path. For the rest of us, we're also invited to continue to grow and produce that wonderful spirit, fruit of the spirit, as we try to remain faithfully rooted and fed by Scripture, by God's Word. Because that truly is the pathway to happiness. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, I I just want to thank you for just the blessings you've given us. I, I thank you that we are able to come, and, and we talked about it in Sunday school today, but I thank you that we have your full word, that, that we have from creation to the end. We have been blessed to be in a time where 
where we have the full canon of Scripture. Not everybody's had that throughout history. And so, Lord, I I pray that we would all not take that for granted, that we would just continue to be rooted in your word, to be fed by your word. And not just here on Sundays, but when we go home, you know, each morning, each evening, whatever it needs to be, that we, that we take your word, we open it. We don't just learn it, but we also apply it. And, and Father, we, I just feel like that is so, so important for, for us to remember. This is how we get to know you in a, that special revelation that you've given us. Father, we just thank you. Thank you that Jesus is the way. He is that pathway. Help us to either follow him, well, help us all to follow him well and faithfully because we know that he is faithful. He was faithful to go to the cross. At this point in our service, we take the time to remember that faithful sacrifice. We take the, the bread representing his body that was broken. We take the juice representing the blood that was spilled, but the blood of a new covenant. You've written that law in our hearts, Lord. We just love you so much. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.